This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode four, The Battle for Basis Points, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, John Hill, and Dan Creter from our FIC Macro Strategy team for a roundtable discussion at one of our annual client events in Toronto. The theme of our chat is The Battle for Basis Points. We focus on our outlook for U.S. rates, high-quality spreads, and the Fed, including a discussion of major risks to our base call and questions from the audience. This is a live recording on May 7th. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Let's begin with Ian Linging on the rates front. Ian, so much has changed already this year. How have these developments impacted your rates call? That's a good question. There has been a few very definitive moments in the Treasury market over the course of the last six or eight months. We learned a lot of important lessons during 2018, which I think are truly informative about the direction of interest rates for the next six or eight months. The first thing that we learned was when we had this culmination of all the bullish events that one could have possibly imagined, we had, this is 2018, we had the return of inflation to some extent, we had growth starting to pick up, we had fiscal stimulus, we had a ton of treasury issuance, we had a record high stock prices, and even in that context, 10-year yields still only managed to get to 325. Now, they got to 325 twice and ultimately broke the equity market, which got the Fed to pause. However, at least from my perspective, that was very defining for the way in which I think the market will behave going forward. I made the point a bit earlier in the last session that in a world where there is effectively zero term premium and we have gone from a Fed, which in 2000 and 12, when they started publishing their forecast, said that the terminal rate for this cycle will be somewhere between three and a half to four percent, to now a Fed that has conceded it's going to be 2.4, then the notion that we'll see 10 year yields challenge three or three and a quarter again this cycle becomes very difficult for, uh, for me to imagine. So what we did is we went from a world in which that was the context to a world where it was very clear that the Tightening in financial conditions was the real operative point for the Fed to shift in in its uh, outlook for monetary policy, and that's where we had the Powell pivot. That hasn't necessarily redefined how we've been thinking about the market per se, but rather just confirmed some of our core beliefs. So in that context, uh, I I mentioned earlier about the cyclical re-steepening of the curve being this year's big trade. We've exhausted a lot of the flattening pressure. We'll probably be in a range in terms of twos, tens of roughly 9 to 20, 25 basis points until we see that big break. The next 75 basis points in twos, tens will definitely be steeper and it will be a bullish re-steepening led by an outperformance of the two-year sector. 
Well, Ian, you mentioned the Powell pivot, and John, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. How do you think the market pricing of the Powell pivot, you know, do you think it's appropriate? Do you think the market overpriced or underpriced the pivot? And, and what do you think comes next? Sure. So from my perspective, we had a very sharp tightening of financial conditions around year end, and we had a classic massively dovish policy impulse. In order to offset the sharp tightening, the Fed sharply eased. And the way that manifests is lower real rates, higher break-evens, and lower nominal rates. And in order to do so, they basically pulled out all the stops. They end the QT program, or started to taper. They basically announced the end of the tightening program. And all that's really done is make equities unchanged from eight months ago. Sure, we're at all-time highs by a small fraction. But if you look at that chart, it took a lot of firepower just to get something flat. And at the end of the day, I do think that's appropriate. The goal of the committee now is to maintain inflation and get inflation back up towards 2%, which will keep them on hold, keep them accommodative, and also extend the cycle. And I think they've managed to pull that off. You know, if we had this conference four months ago, maybe, the word recession would have been used every other sentence. Their dovish pivot has certainly prolonged the cycle. I think inevitably it does give way to a downturn and a cut cycle, but they've managed to push it out significantly. So Ian, I'm gonna turn back to you on the the length of the pause. So our team first went on Powell Pause Watch back in September. And the call of the time was, that Powell would pause. And when, when he did pause, in fact, the market would price out any future tightenings and rally like no tomorrow. And of course, this has been the case. Well, now we need to look forward and say, how long does this pause last? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at a minimum, and then maybe even at a maximum, you know, how long are we in this holding pattern? Well, that's obviously the, the great unknown question of 2019 or 2022 uh, to a large extent. Our base case scenario, at least at this moment, is, as John mentioned, the Fed was very reactive and is in the process of trying to orchestrate a soft landing for the economy. A lot of parallels have been drawn between the current situation and what we saw in the 90s. Perhaps we get a fine-tuning rate cut, something other lines of 25 or 50 basis points to address any further material slowdown in inflation. But unless we see a real shift lower in terms of the outlook for the real economy or a anchoring toward the downside for inflation, I don't think that we're going to be entering a sustainable cutting campaign this year. Now, we will see how the data plays out in the beginning of 2020, but for the very short term, I would argue that the market is doing exactly what we would expect the market to do when the Fed is on hold. If we use the 2006 and 2000 episode as a guide, what we saw at that moment was effective Fed funds at 525 and the two-year yield trading between 50 and 75 basis points below funds for 18 months before the Fed actually needed to follow through with the rate cut. I wouldn't expect that to change. It's a version of the dynamic that we saw play out when the Fed was actively hiking. And that was, we were always priced in, at least in the futures market, two rate hikes and a pause, two rate hikes and a pause until eventually the Fed paused. Now we are a couple meetings on hold and a cut. 
a couple meetings on hold and a cut. And I would expect that to roll forward throughout the course of this year. Said differently, we're pricing in a 25 basis point rate cut by the end of the year in 2019. And unless things deteriorate quite a bit more significantly, I think that the Fed will be content not to have to deliver that. So Dan, let's bring you into the conversation you know, in your spread world. Spreads are extraordinarily tight in high quality space. Why are they tight and where do you think they're going? Well, I think that there are really three drivers of why spreads have gotten so tight. And the first is just the environment that we're in. Obviously, it's a very low ball, no stress environment. To use the words of Ian in the last panel, I think are really pertinent here. The market stopped caring about Brexit a couple months ago. And there's really no other stress on the horizon at this point. Uh, Italy's been quiet for a while. European Parliament elections don't seem to be much of a threat. And China's opened up the floodgates to, to try and engineer a soft landing. So there's, you look on the risk landscape, there's not much out there. And then going further, I mean, we're just in a, in a full-on yield grab, as everyone expects the next significant move in rates to be lower. The battle for the basis point continues to uh, wage fiercer and fiercer. So I think the environment is a major contributing factor. The second factor, I think, is very narrow swap spreads, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. But for the past few months, swap spreads have been bouncing around multi-year lows. And attractive valuations for asset swappers like bank treasuries keeps pushing G spreads lower and lower. But the third factor that I think worth highlighting is just the technicals of it. And I mean technicals in spread markets as well as the treasury market. First, in spread markets, supply has just been much, much lighter. In both the SSA market and even corporate markets, we're seeing issuance in 2018 20% lower than 2017 levels and 2019 off to an underwhelming start again. And it's true that some of that is a result of funding and other currencies becoming more attractive, at least at the beginning part of the year. But it's important to note here that low issuance in, in spread sectors is more of a structural thing, I would argue. Looking at just at the SSAs, their funding programs, for the most part, continue to shrink. The crisis is passed, and, and, and there's less money being lent out from the SSAs, as well as perhaps slower loan distributions, asset distributions on their asset side. So we're seeing the SSAs issue less. And in the corporate world, corporate tax reform you know, changed everything. And there's just going to be less corporate supply now that we're not using debt to fund stock buybacks and, and, and overseas investment portfolios and things like that. So if, if we expect that the shift to lower issuance in spread markets is structural, that argues for narrower spreads. And then also, obviously, the very heavy treasury issuance. And I, and I talk about treasury issuance because it's important to note that baked into your spread to treasuries for, for a spread product is a liquidity premium. When you're buying the spread, you're giving up liquidity, the liquidity offered by a treasury. But when treasury continues to issue record amounts of coupons and dealer balance sheets continue to balloon to all-time highs and probably still going higher, that liquidity premium starts to erode. So when I'm looking at where spreads are trading versus govies now, obviously, and I'm sure everyone in the room would agree, it's not very attractive levels. And we all kind of look at, okay, what's the lowest these spreads have ever traded? But given the dynamics that we have going on right now and such large treasury issuance, I wouldn't be surprised by spreads making new all-time lows against treasuries. It just makes sense when there's so many treasuries out there and the liquidity premium that you're giving up continues to erode. So. Where do spreads go from here? I don't think anywhere, not wider at least. Maybe you see some widening in swap spreads, which would get a little bit more spread, but I view that as a buying opportunity. We've done studies into 
what spreads do in a Fed on hold scenario in the, in the 2000, 2005 experiences. And we usually see them continue to trade sideways or even go narrower up until we, we see the economic data start to really turn over, indicating the end of a cycle. And then, then we should see widening as we enter into a recession. But that's, if these guys are right, a year or so away. So I think tight spreads are here to stay. And, and obviously, the, the mantra that everyone knows, buy the dip, you know, it continues to be probably the best move. So Dan, you, you mentioned something interesting with regard to just the heavy amount of treasury supply. And I'd like to turn to John Hill on this. John has a background at the Federal Reserve, Bank of New York, and, and US Treasury. So you know, John, as, as the, the deficits continue to be large and treasury's funding hundreds and hundreds of billions of debt each year, how can treasury address this? Are there new products that they can introduce to sort of offset some of what Dan is saying here with regard to oversupply of Treasury? Sure, I, I think that that's a really important question. And Treasury probably is not gonna roll out a new product this year, but it's something really important to have in your mind going forward. And something Treasury does uh, every three or six months, depending on the urgency, they survey the primary dealers and ask, what are the maximum auction sizes we can pump out without severely distorting market pricing? And what you're seeing is a lot of current sizes haven't breached that, but they're getting awfully close. Mm -hmm. And we already have trillion dollar deficits. We're gonna need to fund more. The total amount outstanding is gonna be upwards of 27 trillion in the next decade. And that's without a recession. So I'd say upward size to that. So one thing the treasury has been looking at, what other products can we offer, as you mentioned? And there are three that I'd really pull forward. A four-year note is just kind of a natural place on a curve. There's been a lot of research that front-end or intermediate tenor makes a lot of sense. The other one is a 20-year note, maybe not as relevant for some of the reserve managers, but I would expect fours and 20s to come. But one other thing that I find kind of timely is the idea of a one-year silver-linked floater. It's still probably a couple years away, maybe a year or so away, but it is something Treasury is actively studying. And the current research that they've done on this suggests SOFR doesn't necessarily have to pay more than some of the current floaters, which are linked to three-month bills. And the one year might be a nice sweet spot. So I would have that in the back of your mind as a potentially nice floating rate note at a one-year point, as well as some coupon offerings spread around the curve. The introduction of those helps cap how big some of the other auctions can get, because you know Ian and I make this joke every, every time we do an auction write-up. If you don't get any allocation, don't worry, they're, they're gonna make a lot more. Okay, so Ian is a little modest, so I'm gonna toot his horn a little bit. And, and turning, I was gonna say, you know, Ian, if you're wrong, well, he hasn't been wrong. He hasn't been wrong, his call has been dead on. You know, if you are wrong, if it turns out you're wrong, where, where do you think you're wrong and how are you wrong and, and what's, you know, what's the extent of that? Well, for context, I've been wrong in a plenty of different ways. She's just saying that to make me feel good about myself. I appreciate that. Uh, but better lucky than good with the, uh, the bigger parts of our call. If I'm truly wrong at this point in the cycle, it will be because the Fed has been able to orchestrate a soft landing, transition into a price level targeting regime where they make it very clear to the market that they're comfortable letting inflation run a lot higher than it has in the past. And that's the point in which the market will actually demand more term premium or inflation compensation, uh, depending on how one wants to argue that, to go further out the curve. And then we would get a 
bear re-steepening the curve rather than the bullish re-steepening that I'm assuming plays out this year. The caveat there, and the reason that I think that even if that does happen, it will be relatively limited, is we have those two episodes from 2018 in which we saw 10-year yields back up above 325 and the damage that that did to risk assets and how that flowed through to tighter financial conditions. So I think that that's one of the biggest ways in which I might be off the mark. And that's said differently, my baseline cynicism about everything ends up being misplaced and the world is wonderful in the next 18 months. So you brought up an interesting point and that's the, the symmetry around inflation. The Fed has been talking about it, Powell has been talking about it. What do you think they would tolerate on the upside without inflation expectations becoming unanchored? What does symmetry mean to you? I think it's, it's a very, very great question. I think it matters far less what it means to me and more what it means to the Fed. And what they have already communicated is that depending on what measure of inflation one looks at, let's just call it core PCE for the time being, a move above 2% sustainably, if it comes in 18 months, in even eight months, is going to be far less worrisome than a move below 1.413 in the very, very short term. If they're able to stay the course, keep monetary policy on hold with inflation trending lower with the promise that they will let it run hotter later, I think that that will be pulling off the one really big shift in the way that the market thinks the Fed views inflation. I'm pretty skeptical that they'll actually be able to do that without the market truly forcing them into some type of fine-tuning cut. Right. The, I think, question of whether or not it's achievable mm -hmm. is key, but at the same time, throw out a number. Is it 2.2? Is it 2.3? Is it 2.4? Uh, yes. <laughs> so you can easily see the Fed say, oh, well, we got a 2.4 core PCE. We're not going to move. But if you get a 2.4 for six months, mm -hmm. they're going to have to do something. Mm -hmm. So I think that a sustainable move and it's a three-month moving average is what I think the Fed really cares about in terms of the trajectory of core inflation. And that's what I would be worried about. Uh, that said, if we look at the actual composition of core inflation in the U.S., it's really been one thing that has been driving inflation higher over the course of the last two years, or I mean, it hasn't even been that high, and that has been shelter costs and OER. Now, there have been fluctuations within apparel prices and to some extent within auto prices as well, whether that's tariff-related or not, is kind of a moot point. If we see a rolling over of home prices, a moderation of rents, what we'd, we would presumably see is OER go from printing at 0.3 every month, as it has been in the core CPI series, to a mean reverted 0.2. And at that point, it starts to become very, very difficult to assume that we're going to have upward pressure on overall core PCE. All right, so Dan, I'd like to turn back to you. You mentioned that swap spreads were very tight and that was one of the main reasons that high quality spreads and SSAs and whatnot were narrow. Why are swap spreads tight? Well, when we talk about swap spreads, there's really two main drivers. The first is LIBOR and the second is repo. So when LIBOR is low, we expect narrow swap spreads and when repo is high, we expect narrow swap spreads. And for the majority of 2019 so far, we've kind of had a perfect storm. 
where LIBOR has, has compressed 30 basis points to OIS and is now trading you know, just upwards of 15 basis points near two-year lows. And repo, as we all know, has been very elevated. So we've had kind of both determinants of swap spreads pointing to narrow spreads. And on the LIBOR leg, I think it makes perfect sense. The inverted curve is very powerful for LIBOR to come down. First, we have uh, record inflows into prime funds. Since money market fund reform, we've seen record inflows into prime funds over the past six months, which makes sense. When the curve's inverted and the, and the best yield you can get is in the short end, that's where the money goes. But the other aspect of it is it also incentivizes banks to term their funding out. Whereas LIBOR-linked issuance was typically the cheapest issuance for a bank, it no longer is. So you're seeing more demand for bank products and less supply at the same time. And unsurprising, LIBOR has fallen. We also see no stress that would potentially be some kind of credit pricing into LIBOR. There's nothing like that. So LIBOR is very low and, and repo has been very high. And the problem there we all know is excess collateral. Record treasury issuance leading to messier and messier funding conditions at quarter ends, which I think now the quarter ends are just being priced into repo intra-quarter. People are trying to lock up over the term funding earlier and earlier, and you're seeing upward pressure on repo now just kind of persistent. So we've had this perfect storm and swap spreads are very narrow. Where do we think they go from here? We do think we've seen the lows in swap spreads and that the next move is higher. And that's going to be most likely driven by repo. We don't see too much upward pressure on LIBOR for the reasons I talked about just a second ago. One thing to keep an eye on there with LIBOR is the cross-currency bases have been kind of continually grinding narrower over the past few months. And we're reaching levels where it might start to look attractive for a bank to issue in dollars and send those dollars abroad. If LIBOR does go wider outside of a credit event, I think that will be the, the impetus. So that's worth keeping an eye on. But if LIBOR is, is not likely to move significantly as we expect, it's gonna be repo that sends swap spreads wider. And there are a few marginal reasons to think why repo could move higher in the near term, including you know, end of balance sheet normalization, cutting off the supply of excess collateral, the growth of FICC repo, these things matter at the margin. But I really, I really think there are two important factors that could bring repo down. And, and the first is bill supply projections. We have, our projection is for the treasury to have negative bill supply of negative 390 billion over the second and third quarter. So far in the second quarter, we've gotten about 100 billion in negative supply, which, which means we have almost 300 billion left to go before the end of the third quarter. And that number could even be larger depending on the debt ceiling. So negative bill supply, removing some of that collateral should start to free up repo. But if it doesn't, the Fed's likely gonna have to act. And, and we've all seen the, the Fed funds headlines recently, uh, Fed funds trading very elevated. It's important to note though that really the only way they can bring Fed funds down now is to bring repo down. These IOER adjustments don't as directly impact Fed funds as they used to. It used to be that a bank would either park their money at the Fed in an IOER or lend the money in the Fed funds market. But now what we've seen for the first time sustained over the last three months is repo trading higher than Fed funds. So now the decision for a bank is either I parked at the Fed or I lend in repo. Nothing's bringing Fed funds down. So the IOER adjustments, they provide this transitory relief. We see a quick knee-jerk reaction and now all three times we start to see Fed funds leak higher. And that's for the reasons we just described. What the Fed is doing is they're addressing the symptoms. They have to address the actual problem and the problem is repo. So what can the Fed do? They can either start buying bills or more likely they'll institute a repo facility. And my expectation is they'll do so at September at the latest, and I wouldn't be surprised by a June announcement if we don't see repo soften up between now and the June meeting. 
no matter what the Fed wants to avoid another bad funding conditions like they had at the end of last year going into this year, which means we're going to have to have a repo facility before the end of the year, which means they're going to have to announce one in September at the latest. So we should finally start to see meaningful relief in repo markets. Repo rates start to fall, which will finally start to kick swap spreads wider. John, with regard to the debt ceiling and everything else that's going on coming up at the same time some of these facilities might be instituted, you know, what are your thoughts on, on the debt ceiling? Sure. So the debt limit, we're already up against the debt limit. The federal government is employing extraordinary measures so that it doesn't default. And those extraordinary measures are projected to be exhausted September, October. Nobody's entirely sure. And what this does, in my view, is it leads to higher uncertainty around the bill supply outlook. You know, we were talking about this. It's very binary. Either the debt limit is resolved or it's not. And bill supply looks very different in each of those different states of the world. As of now, we see no impact of the debt limit on market pricing. And I would say that when we do see an impact on pricing, tends to be much closer to the exhaustion date. So this is probably a September story when you really start to see things blow out. And there are two risks that are happening. One, a lot of people are going to talk about the default risk. You know, we have heightened political rhetoric, dot, dot, dot. But the other risk, and this is almost more important, is liquidity risk. So even if there's no delayed repayment, you could see a significant liquidity deterioration in any bill or coupon that had payments due around any uncertainty date. So my base case scenario is still very much, it will get resolved. It'll probably be sloppier and more annoying and more frustrating than it should be. But what it will lead to is a sharp drop in bill supply, particularly in the four and eight week bill. In the past, the four-week bill has gone from 50 billion to 5 billion to 50 billion. That's a lot of volatility in supply. It tosses around money markets. And to that point, yes, there will be downward pressure on bill supply. But once it's resolved, expect to see a spigot come open, a lot of issuance simultaneously. And Dan, I think this is where your point on the repo facility is nice. If you have that facility in place while that huge wall of issuance comes post-debt limit, it might help the market absorb some of the higher issuance. All right, we have a couple of questions coming in uh, to Dan Creter. If the Fed launches a repo facility, to whom will it be available? Banks, in a word, just, just banks. It's dealers that have the, the excess collateral and it's dealers that they need to save. I think it will just be accessible by banks. And John, with regard to the possibility of a repo facility, how about the possibility of the Fed changing their target from Fed funds to IOER or something else? Sure. Uh, So one, I'd say on the possibility of a repo facility, I haven't had the chance to look into the details. I believe the Fed is starting operational testing in this. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they're 100% going to do it. But, you know, Dan, I'm with you that that's a positive sign. They would need to be doing some operational testing before fully engaging this, make sure it works. In terms of shifting the target, There have been a couple proposals, and each has some pretty significant drawbacks, but then again, so does staying with Fed funds. It's really weird to target Fed funds in the modern day. It's it's a very strange rate of all possible things that determine financial conditions in the US. It's FHLBs lending to small banks and previously foreign banks. That's a weird number. So some ideas include OBFR, the overnight bank funding rate, There's been some attempts at deepening that market. Volumes are a little better. It tracks Fed funds relatively well. Okay, but it still is highly 
very close to bed bugs. Sofer is one that gets tossed around a lot. I'm more skeptical on Sofer, and a lot of it has to do with the Fed doesn't control collateral. That's Treasury's job. So the Fed would be exposing themselves to repo rates when they don't control the amount of issuance that comes out. That very much complicates their job. And a third one that ex-President Dudley of the New York Fed proposed was just targeting IOER. And it's kind of a definitional target because the Fed just sets IOER. But what that could do is IOER is shown to have very strong pull over different rates. You know, maybe you see a couple basis point drift here or there, but having IOER as the target rate, as long as you generally have control of money markets and therefore are able to impact financial conditions, is intriguing. The big problem, of course, is it's not market determined. It's literally just someone at a computer typing in IOER and pushing enter. And there's a question as to whether the FOMC will be comfortable with that. I think this is a really important conversation and one that's being had behind closed doors. And I hope we start to get a little more clarity on it in the next couple of years. Okay, very related to that, Dan, if they were to institute a repo facility, what would the rate be? So I think there are three main camps on the rate in all our conversations. It's been either the upper bound, the upper bound plus 25, or the upper bound plus 50. I don't think the upper bound plus 50 is effective enough. The Fed wants to set the rate at the level that will provide meaningful relief, but is not one that's being used every day. Setting it 50 basis points above the upper bound just basically gets you more orderly quarter ends, which is not insignificant. But I think that addressing repo, the Fed will err on the side of having too much activity rather than it not being effective enough. So for me, the decision comes down to upper bound plus 25 or just the upper bound. We know the Fed doesn't necessarily run the largest repo book in the world, but you could argue they've already done that with the reverse repo program and we're all still alive. So I think that upper bound plus 25 makes the most sense, but I'm also not convinced it has to be 0, 25, or 50. It doesn't have to be a 25 basis point step. I think you could see it upper bound plus 10 or 15. Make there at least some type of punishment for, for using the facility, even if it's for a short period of time. I'm expecting between 10 and 25, and no matter what rate the Fed picks, they will give themselves the flexibility to change it. It's not going to be set in stone. I think this is going to be a, a learn-as-you-go kind of thing, and the Fed will, will start by maybe setting it a little lower and potentially ratcheting it up if they have to. Dan Creator, we have another one coming in for you. Back to the Supras. Which Supra do you believe will outperform relative to the others, Washington, Europe, or Asia? Outperform relative to the other ones, that's kind of a tough one because everything's so tight, they're on top of each other. So if I'm going to pick one to outperform, you almost have to pick Washington because there's how much more can Europeans tighten to Washington? EIB KFW is trading on top of. I don't think it makes much sense for them to trade tighter than Washington Supras. Near term, I guess I, what I'll do is I'll split it between two. Near term, I think you want to be in whatever SSA yields the most. So Asian SSAs, tier two, even tier three European SSAs in peripheral countries. Near term, I think those will outperform. Long term, they're going to underperform. So you know, if, I, if my time horizon is three to six months, I'm going for as much yield as I can. If I'm a buy and hold and I don't want mark-to-market volatility, Washington Supers, I think, will outperform over the next, say, 12 to 18 months. So we'll move back to Ian, and it's in the event of a re-steepening of twos, tens. How will this affect twos, fives? 
And the question really is, will fives remain rich in that context? That is a very, very good unknown. I think it really comes down to how severe the cutting cycle is expected to be. I think in the first iteration, you will see twos outperform fives if the assumption is the cut is a function of an external event, whether it's a slowing of the global economy or if it is something uh, domestically that implies that we're going to have a series of cuts. So for a single cut, I think the knee jerk will be a little bit of outperformance by the two-year sector, so a re-steepening of twos, fives. But as it all gets priced in, which it invariably does, I think the five-year sector then outperforms up to some version of a terminal rate cutting cycle. And that implies a an extension of the 5s, 30s re-steepening that we've already seen take hold. I think that intuitively the cycle has turned on that and that trend will persist. And also a re-steepening of the 5s, 10s curve as well. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. One topic that we really didn't talk about yet is the elections in the U.S. next year and the changing political landscape that occurred in the midterm elections. How are you taking that into account in terms of your view for rates policy? Well, one of the things that in my career I have gotten horribly incorrect was the 2016 election. Not only did I not see the outcome, but I also miscalled how the market would respond to a Republican landslide. And what struck me was that the market was quite content to ignore the actual individual in the White House and simply trade the party. And it was very clearly a pro-business reflation, re-steepening the curve, sell-off in the treasury market, rally in the equity market. And so that informs how I'm looking at 2020. And by that, I mean when we see a increase in the probability that a Democrat takes the White House, I would expect that to be negative for risk assets, which would certainly complicate the Fed's job somewhat. But if it appeared that Trump was going to remain in the White House, as counterintuitively as it might sound, I think that that will ultimately be good for risk assets. And I think that that will be the most relevant trade, at least in the Treasury market. Well, staying with the White House for now, I think we can turn to um, John Hill. The White House has been trying to put pressure on the Fed. Do you think that this pressure is real? Do you think the Fed responds to it? So I would say two things. First, Fed policy far and away is going to be much more economic and data dependent than it is political dependent. I think a lot of the political dynamics, they're great talking points. They get thrown around in the media a lot. But the Fed is actively going to try to do what they see most appropriate. Where this gets complicated is the communication around this. Certainly conversations we've had suggest that people think the reason for the pause of the hiking cycle was due to pressure from the White House. We would argue that it was due to tightening financial conditions. And if anything, the influence can actually backfire. This is actually the reason why, historically, the White House doesn't put pressure on the Fed. All else equal, say it's you know a coin flip as to whether they should hike or not, well, the Fed's going to assert its independence and play for time and figure out what they're going to do. Arguably, we've heard that's a contributing factor to one of the reasons they went ahead with a December hike unanimously. It wasn't even an obvious coin flip at the time. 
in essence, the more pressure there is to cut, the harder it will be for the Fed to actually do so. So when we talk about some of these fine tuning cuts, it'll be increasingly difficult for Powell to communicate that this is just a fine tuning cut. This is due to low inflation. This is not due to political pressure. And that serves to raise the bar for them doing so. But that being said, no, I, th I think inflationary outcomes, I think the job market and I think general financial conditions are far and away the three most important factors with complications due to messaging, basically. All right, so we are coming up on our final few minutes. I'll ask the three of you to summarize your top outlook or top trades uh, over the next six months through your end. Or you can frame it up whatever way you want. We'll start with Ian. At the risk of being over repetitive, I do think that it's the timing of the twos, tens cyclical re-steepening that really is this year's big trade. It will also be interesting to see at what level dip buyers really start to come in in the 10 and 30 year sector as the Fed remains on hold, presumably, again, for the foreseeable future, call it six months. Uh, and rates do have episodes where they creep back up. And I think that will really help define where we expect we're ultimately going to see the outlook for 10s and 30s for the next, I would say, next two or three years, frankly. Where do you see 10s at the end of the year? In November, we went out with 10 year yields at 255, and I still think that they end at 255. I do think that, a, again, a lot of the drama in the Treasury market this year is going to play out in the front end of the curve. But that doesn't mean that 10-year yields can't trade with a one-handle. It doesn't mean that 10-year yields can't push up back north of 280. We're at a volatile point in the cycle. As the point was made earlier, it's a pivotal time for the cycle. And we'd expect at least a fair amount of that to play out in the long end of the curve. John, I'll turn to you. I guess I would, I would say two is the market's at a moment where it's trying to price X probability of a cut and one minus X of on hold. And that means I would say that the market's always overpricing the probability of a near term cut. So be careful in extending duration. Don't absorb a negative term premium. There will be a moment where it becomes obvious cuts are coming. But in the meantime, try to keep duration short. Variety of ways to express that. I like floaters most recently. You could also look into paying fixed and OIS, keeping bills short, however you want to do it. The other one in a more fundamental play would be real yields, tips. I think five-year tips right now around 50 basis points, very strong likelihood that they're pushing back negative by the end of 2020, if not sooner. So I would expect real yields to continue to fall and especially accelerate their decline as we get closer to a downturn. Wonderful. Dan? Very quickly, I think the yield grab is is here and it's very real. So going down in yield, every conversation I have, literally every conversation, whether it's with the central bank, all the way down to asset managers, every single person I talk to is buying whatever the lowest credit quality thing is that they're allowed to buy. So even if these spreads don't make sense here, I think they're going to continue to narrow. I shudder to think what the guy who normally buys CLOs is now buying, but that's what everyone's doing. So I think the yield grab for the next six months I think the next big trade in, in my markets, at least, is the Fed repo facility, which I think is going to be soon. So owning versus LIBOR, I know most of the room probably doesn't hedge, but however you express your view for swap spreads to go wider, 
I think that, that uh, that's going to be a big move once the Fed puts in the repo facility. Wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for your um, insights today. And thank everyone in the audience. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and submitting questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash Macro Horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.